0: I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton.
1: I'm Erin Scala.
0: And here's our show today. Frandi Savino and Bill Nesto on the show today. They are the co-authors of The World of Sicilian Wine, as well as Chianti Classico, A Search for Tuscany's Noblest Wine. Nice to see you both.
2: Hi, Levy.
1: It's a pleasure.
0: I think one of the things that's really appealing about both of your books is how much depth they get into about the specific regions. In one case, the first book was about Sicily, and the other one is about the Chianti area, and specifically comparing that to Chianti Classico in Tuscany. So, why don't we start with the Sicilian book and how you got involved and decided this was something you wanted to do?
2: I had an assignment to write an article about Sicily for Sante magazine. Uh, It's a restaurant wine magazine. And uh, this was, I think, in 2008. So, we went together, and this was for three weeks, and we went around the whole island, and it was an incredible adventure.
1: In fact, the year before Levy, we had spent, I think, probably two weeks in Greece. And in advance of that trip, I reread Homer's Odyssey. So when we went to Sicily, of course, I was reminded of the passages in Homer's Odyssey and how he characterized the native people of Sicily who populated Mount Etna as a lawless tribe that grew nothing and planted nothing and just lived off of the wild fertility of their land, and what Bill and I experienced in those several weeks circumnavigating the island was something so at odds with that characterization that we were fundamentally impressed and inspired to tell the story.
2: Yes, one of its major problems in terms of wine and other goods, uh, manufactured goods, they've been very good at creating the raw materials, but not good at turning those raw raw materials into finished products. The agricultural
0: side, the hard part, the sweaty labor part, the poor agricultural part is what is the habit. But then when it gets to actually profiting from that in terms of a bottled sale and having a reputation develop as a result, the follow-through can be challenging.
2: That's right. They've always had strangers in their midst, many of whom have been profiteering. And, and so they, they're very cautious, and even among themselves, they're very cautious. And one of the things we point out that have kept the Sicilian wine industry back was a lack of trust among themselves and ability to collaborate, which I think really held them back, um, particularly at a period in the late 19th century when they could have created something that would have endured through the very troubling first half of the 20th century, um, where you had intense poverty, crime, where you had World War I, where you had the economic depression, World War Two, and much of Sicily, particularly the agricultural force, left.
0: So you described in your book how that period of the late 19th century was really a missed opportunity, as you phrased right. it, how it led to economic decline for the island, and how then there was a brain drain— out of the island through immigration because some of the agricultural knowledge basically left in the form of the people who were working sure. the, yeah. the fields. Exactly.
2: exactly.
1: Right. It was in that, in fact, same period when there were reform-minded Sicilians who were striving to pass land reform at the national level that would have incented small to medium farmers who would have dedicated themselves to improving viticultural practices and winemaking. But those reforms never happened. And as Bill said, many of those small farmers and sulfur workers and urban laborers left, mostly for the United States.
2: But those reforms finally did happen in the 1950s. Fran's referring to the late 19th century when there was talk about land reform. Sicily's been characterized, their land holdings, by these huge um huge properties, hundreds th- if not thousands of hectares, where uh, poor people would rent, would have contracts for several years, and they would be very much ground into the ground by hard-nosed managers called Gabalotti. And it was a a brutal situation, and that reform didn't come about, but in the 1950s with the rise of the European Union, then it was the common market, there was a new sort of socioeconomic policy became much more liberal, and there was a big land reform, and that did break up a lot of the uh, major land holdings in Sicily, and really created the perfect environment for the cooperative movement, which had been dormant throughout much of the 20th century uh, in the 1960s. And that cooperative movement gave birth to a kind of agriculture, which unfortunately, uh, because of EU policies, became sort of driven towards creating wine in order to destroy it, to get EU monies. And this was one of the misfortunes of sort of misplaced policy. And and of course, the Sicilians too, uh, abusing that policy. And that led to what's widely known as the European Wine Lake and, and helped destroy, I think, or, or, or hurt uh, Sicily's reputation in Italy so much that a Northern League has developed in the north of Italy, which wants to secede from the south because uh, they've seen all their money go to the south. And so the Sicily's new wine culture in the 20th century had to rise out of that checkered history. And I think you have to look at Diego Planeta. In the 1970s and 80s, Basically, uh, he had a, a big open mind. He spoke English and was widely traveled. was a was a successful businessman, and he became president of Setasole, a large cooperative, but also of a quasi governmental institution called the IRVV. And he brought uh, instilled a lot of ideas in in the winemaking culture, which had young winemakers traveling to other countries to learn their technology to come back and instill them in Sicilian analogy and viticulture. He also brought Giacomo Tacos from Tuscany and uh, Jean-Paul Fabry, a famous uh, marketing consultant who created the branding power of Barilla. And so he basically created this this sort of environment where elements could come together and sort of create a Sicilian viticulture and analogy that was relevant to the modern world because that's what it lacked relevance. It had Marsala, but Marsala had been basically driven into the ground by mostly Sicilian merchants who turned it into a cooking line through the first half of the 20th century. But the English played a role in there too. Well, the English were a very important role, actually quality-producing role, and, and they really created Marcel in the 1775 or so, uh, and uh, it was John Woodhouse. He was looking for an inexpensive alternative for Madeira, came looking there for soda ash for soaps and stuff like that, and uh, drank the local wine, which was probably a vino perpetuo. He was followed by Ingham, who was actually became more important than him. And they created a lot of wealth and employed a lot of Sicilians and uh, also invested in the infrastructure of Marsala and brought a lot of mercantile know-how and also helped Enology, too. So they were essential, but at the time of the unification, um, the Risorgimento of Italy, Garibaldi came down with all his red shirts, and after the war was over, all these red shirts were armed and became absorbed into the countryside, uh, and uh, it became very difficult for uh, the Brits to do business, and also the government uh, started laying incredibly high taxation on spirits, particularly spirits, but also wine, and so they left. And... Who took their place were were basically uh, a lot of Sicilian merchants who really didn't understand the Marsala business. And it was basically they who turned it into uh, a cooking product. And by the time of the 1950s or 60s, it had really lost its image as a a high-quality fortified wine. That history really
0: mirrors an ebb and flow that you see throughout the history of Sicily as different societies, often from outside the island, have come through. And I thought that the book was really strong in describing that period, especially from the pre-Greek times up into that 19th century. And I think you did a lot of work on that, right, Fran?
1: I did, absolutely. Um, in the first chapter, the origins of Sicilian wine and culture trace, as you say, the succeeding waves of people. Of course, there were indigenous to the extent people or grapevines can be indigenous in Sicily before the advent of Greek colonists. But fundamentally, while there may have been a wild vine in Sicily, what the historical record shows, it was those Greek settlements on the eastern southern coasts of Sicily where the culture of the vine took root, and you had the migration of vine varieties from Greece through Sicily to central and northern Italy, and obviously up into continental Europe. And the record, I think, is clear with respect to that. And their culture of wine flourished in those ancient Greek Sicilian settlements. In fact, there was a drinking game called Katabos, where celebrants in the after-dinner celebration called the symposium, which involved dancing and music and poetry and other pleasure-seeking rituals, would fling the sediments at the bottom of their wine cups toward a suspended disk. And whoever was successful in dislodging that disk was considered a winner. This became so popular, it spread not just through the Greek Sicilian settlements, but through ancient Greece. And there was a genre of even poetry that celebrated wine that was popular in in Sicily and became popular in the ancient Greek world.
0: Post that time, basically every major civilization comes through at one time or another. You have the Romans come through, you have the Muslims come through, and then before it becomes Italy, all kinds of European countries come through as kind of ruling caste or business relationships for some period of time.
1: Exactly. And if you look at maps from the 11th and 12th century, Sicily is portrayed as an apple or pomegranate. It is in the middle of the Mediterranean, of the Middle Sea. I think it was Goethe who said that Sicily evokes Europe Asia, and Africa. And for each of those succeeding waves of people, I think they were inspired by Sicily's fertility and by its exoticism, frankly, because of the influence of each of those succeeding waves. In fact, when the Normans conquered Sicily and wrested control of the island from the Muslims who had inhabited it for 200 years, the first king King Roger, built his court in Palermo using Muslim, Greek, and his French soldiers and administrators. It was a synthesis of cultures.
0: And it seems like the political situation has really had a big effect on whether agriculture has thrived or not. Correct. And sometimes surprisingly so.
1: Yes. For example, during the Muslim era, they established policies that favored intensive agriculture. Uh, They had patterns of inheritance that favored the conveyance of small pieces of land, which encouraged intense production of land use. But they also brought their established knowledge of agriculture and irrigation and grafting to the island. And it was a period when agriculture flourished. Of course, in the period of Norman rule, I think there was even a more successful policy because you had one sovereign not competing rulers within the island and the Norman rulers established uniform taxes and they improved the roadways and trade. And interestingly enough, while they were followed by their mercenaries who were barons from Normandy, their baronage was weak. And so the power really resided with the Norman kings who established policies that were, as you said, fundamental for the improvement of agriculture, and by one measurement, Roger II, who was the initial Norman ruler's son, had more wealth from his agricultural revenue in the city of Palermo than his cousin William the Conqueror did from all of England.
0: So there is a lot of diversity in Sicily, and maybe we should describe the layout of the
2: island in terms of what is where. Geographically. There's a a coastal plain that circles the island, which tends to be fairly warm and gentle winds, very dry. It's very Mediterranean. And then there's generally, particularly in in the southern part of the island, a period where there are some rolling hills. But then in the northern part of an island, there's actually mountain ranges that are are extensions of the uh, Apennines. in the center, the climate is very, very high hills and some isolated mountains and very continental in climate. so you have both a continental climate in the in the center of Sicily, but you have this sort of coastal Mediterranean climate around the perimeter. The warmest part of Sicily uh, is the southeast corner, and it shows in the in the of the Pacino area, which tend to be fairly high in alcohol uh, and have a slight sort of dried fruit character to them. And uh, the western part of the island has mostly white grapes, mostly uh, Caterato, uh, inzalea are two of the important uh, indigenous grapes there. So when you go southeast, you see warmer temperatures and more red
0: wines in general, even though the elevation often shifts. And then when you are in the northwest, which is where Palermo is, that's where a lot of the white wine production is and a lot of where the grapes from Marsala are grown.
2: That's generally true. Uh, I, I think the grapes from Marsala, Marsala is a city, a port city uh, on the west coast, and that's the sort of ancient heart of the marsala wine industry so that's where the oldest vineyards are with the expansion of interest in the late 19th century the vineyards extended to palermo for marsala production and eventually extended throughout the island but then in, there was new laws in the 1960s which brought back the production limit to basically the western half of the island uh, palermo historically has been a, an area for production of both white and red wine.
0: And then there are some sort of satellite islands off of the main island
2: of Sicily. Yeah. Maybe the most interesting is, is Pantelleria, which is right off Tunisia, basically, and, and uh, it's closer to the Sahara Desert and those warm, hot winds which uh, desiccate the island. And it's, so it's been a great site for making dried grape or passito wines. So in terms of wine style and wine variety, you
0: see a a pretty broader way. There could be dry, crisp white wines. There could be fuller-bodied red, dry wines. There could be dried grape wines that are quite sweet. Um, There could be Marsala, which is kind of a Solera, perpetual blend. And there could even be sparkling wines made from sometimes native grape varieties and sometimes international.
2: Sure, and that's why we call the book The World of Sicilian Wine."
0: So a lot of diversity, and that must have presented some challenges for you in terms of just researching the book. I would think that that would take a lot of time.
2: It was very intense. We made something like eleven trips there, and uh, uh, it was a real experience. Uh, driving around Sicily is is a thing in itself. The roads really don't go into the interior. It seems like the the interior was disconnected from the perimeter of the island. Uh, large estates would have roads that went from their positions in the interior to the perimeter where there are ports but you didn't have roads that went from one end of the island to the next that was only happened post-World War II with the European Common Union, EEC so uh, it's a big world uh, and there's a lot it's, it's a place to be discovered still you can go skiing in the winter time, on the top of Mount Etna, and you can do cool climate uh, viticulture and agriculture on Mount Etna and various points in the internal Sicily, in the center of Sicily, and yet around the coastline, it's very very warm. Uh, and by Pantelleria, it's like you're in Africa.
1: As Bill was suggesting in the 1980s with Diego Planeta's ascendancy to the presidency of this organization called the Institute of Vines and Wine, Sicilians welcomed the northern and central Italians from Tuscany, from Piedmont, who came to teach them more advanced techniques in viticulture and enology and in marketing. And, of course, I think the first phase of the rebirth of the quality Sicilian wine industry was marked by really a marrying of northern Italian varieties as well as technology, which we chronicle in our book. And it was really with the beginning of the 2000s that Sicilians, and this is the point when we went in 2008, were fully embracing their indigenous varieties and locating the best sites for those varieties.
2: Western Sicily was more mercantile. Eastern Sicily, um, more influenced by the Greeks, uh, had a culture that was a little bit more resistant. And while Takas uh, and the IRVV were important influences, most of their influences were embraced by Western Sicily. Eastern Sicily uh, had a red wine producing industry strongly influenced by Greek viticulture. And just as the English had given sort of life to Western Sicily through the Marsala industry, um, Lord Nelson's uh, fleet, which was protecting Sicily from Napoleon, who was going down the the boot of Italy, uh, needed to be victualized. Their ships needed uh, wine, and it was basically Etna and Faro, which was to the north of Etna along the coast, um, which provided Milazzo, which provided those, that, that, that fleet with wine. And the wine was really quite good. And we sort of chronicle how that particular wine became important. We discovered this Tuscan priest who went down there to do some research uh, and uh, wrote about it in the late 18th century, and uh, he described wines which had a great capacity to endure sea voyages, which, of course, Lord Nelson's fleet needed. And this was the uh, Nerello Mascalese, which was grown on Etna, and uh, the Nocera, which was grown in Faro and Milazzo, which provided the fleet with this very, very durable wine which is now really where a lot of the excitement is in Sicily regarding its wine industry.
0: It really does seem like in that 20th century resurgence that you already referred to, there were kind of two stages of the rocket where, one, there was a break into the international markets from wines that were maybe a little bit more to the international taste, sometimes using pan-European grape varieties. And now we see a lot more emphasis, at least in The New York segment of the market that I am closer to on wines that are considerably less alcoholic than that, that tend to come from indigenous grape varieties or that are made in a little bit more of a rustic fashion.
1: Because they're authentic. And in the same way, some of Sicily's poets, going back to the 16th century, there was a poet, Antonio Veneziano, and he only would write in the Sicilian language. Of course, with the advent of Tuscan, which in effect became the Italian language, dialects like Sicilian were relegated to a secondary stature. But as he said, if Homer were to write, not write in Greek, or um, Virgil not to write in Latin, why shouldn't it be natural for me not to write in Sicilian. It was an embrace of his authentic language in order to reveal his place and his people. And in the same way, Sicilian wine growers have embraced their indigenous varieties with the same quest.
0: You as a team are really known for going to primary sources. I would imagine that would be more of a challenge in a situation where there's so many different languages that have come across and different cultures that have come across the island at different times, where the records and probably the manuscripts of different wine texts are probably in vastly different languages.
2: Most of it is in, in Italian. And some of it was we had the good luck in Sicily. There was a lot of material that was in parliamentary papers. There was one particular individual called named William Stegand. Uh, and he was a wine connoisseur and had a sort of a unique vision of sicily because he also understood french wine and german wine were there particular revelations that came across that you picked up in different
0: perhaps parliamentary records
2: my biggest revelation was actually what went on in the 19th century that there was this nascent sort of wine culture which really rivaled that of tuscany chianti really but it didn't survive, unlike Chianti. Chianti barely survived, and that's the topic of our next book.
1: Well, I think in the link to Tuscany is that abbot Domenico Sistini that Bill referenced. He came to Sicily for three years, from 1774 to 1776, to study specifically the vine varieties, winemaking, and agriculture of Sicily. And some 25 or 30 years later, in 1812, he gave a lecture to the prestigious J.R. Academy in Florence, and it was supposed to be a series of seven lectures in which he was going to lecture on seven different sub-regions within Sicily, and he was genuinely impressed by the quality he saw. And this is at the end of the 18th century, a full century before the proto-quality wine industry Bill was just referring to. And what struck me was how his Tuscan audience and the Girogolfly is made up of Probably the most prestigious families within Florence and Tuscany in general, his audience was completely dismissive of and disbelieving of his his assertions about what he himself had observed. That he canceled the rest of his lecture series after his first two. He lectured on uh, Etna and Vittoria, and while his manuscript is not extant, there is a manuscript or a little book that was produced in Palermo that chronicles these two lectures that he did give at the Gerogophili. And and that, for me, was a revelation that in the late 18th century, he was a witness to the vibrancy of Etna and its wine industry. And really, the entrepreneurship that existed in the small towns at the coast of Etna, like Moscoli and Riposto, where Sicilians really, for the first time, probably since Norman rule, were building their own ships and and commercializing their own wine throughout the Mediterranean.
2: The other thing uh, that, that struck me was the influence of Giacomo Tacos, who is basically had been, for Italy, the agent of French modern French technology, Emile Peno, Bordeaux.
0: Where they actually collaborated in Tuscany for a while.
2: Yes, uh, he was very friendly with Emile Peno. But... Um, in Sicily, they had a great viticulture. They didn't need help growing grapes. Uh, and Tacus was not a viticulturalist. He was a man of the cellar and the lab. And what Sicily needed was good analogy. And so he brought the good analogy. And of all places for red wine, particularly Aetna, uh, needed great analogy. Their old Pestenbotta, their old traditional way of making wine was was destroying wine. It wasn't making wine. It was destroying it. The, it developed a local taste, and the French traders knew how to get it young before it was destroyed. But but by the time it sat around for any length of time, it was destroyed. He taught Sicily and Eastern Sicilians who were resistant to some of us ideas how to vinify so that the wine was stable. And that was, I think, crucial to Sicily. And just like in Tuscany, he got them to a stage where the international world could appreciate their wines because their their wines were clean and modern. But there was enough interest for Sicilians themselves to start rethinking and revaluing what was really Sicilian. And I think they have moved on from then, as you mentioned earlier, to their indigenous varieties, but also to other ways of making wine. Or you, you also mentioned rustic, which, which would be the kind of wine Takis would never make. Um, people like Salvo Foti or some of the Amphora wines of Kos or whatever, some of the inspiration there has come from reevaluating uh, ancient technologies and doing things in other ways. Frank Cornelison, another guy who's doing a lot of controversial stuff. So it's become a very creative place. It's really the most uh, creative place on the Italian uh, enological scene only maybe Friuli rivals it with uh, the influence of Josco Gravner and Radicon and those people. So it's quite an exciting place to be from a, a wine perspective, both in terms of its, the incredible potential of its geography, uh, its diversity of indigenous varieties, and the, the open-mindedness to experimentation. What about that
0: geography, specifically in terms of Etna? Because there's a whole mountain face that isn't planted to vines, and then there's other parts that are, and some are white and some are red. So how does that all work out actually on the mountain?
2: The western fa- face isn't planted to vines, and perhaps there are two major reasons for that. Probably the most important one is that it was very hard to get to. And uh, it was on the side of the island, which wasn't really that accessible by transportation and far from ports, et cetera. The other, the other factor is, is that it faces west, which is the hottest exposition. And so uh, you had to be more careful about sunburn on grapes. But I think really it's the first reason which, which is more important. Nowadays, with canopy management, you can manage those the, the kind of sunburn issues. The transportation issues, even today, it's not so easy to get to the western face of Etna, Each particular face has its own climate, and the climate varies not only according to what exposition is, but also the elevation. And then the third factor is the lava flows, each of which is distinct and which has... Soil a, a different age and therefore a different level of fertility because it takes centuries for lava flows to become fertile. But also different chemical uh, constituents which vary with each lava flow. So it's a, it's an amazing place to comprehend terroir. Uh, more amazing than Burgundy, for instance, which is, actually has a fairly uniform soil structure with faults making slight variations along the east-facing face of the Côte de nuit
0: And like Burgundy, on the mountain of Etna, it does seem like we're dealing with terroir expressive grape varieties uh, quite often.
2: Nerella Mascalese is like like Sangiovese, and like Nebbiolo is very terroir expressive. And Caracante is terroir expressive too. Although we still have to understand Caracante better. I think Nerola Nerola Muscalesia is being better understood now.
0: And it was interesting when you were speaking about Grio in your book kind of contrasting that in my mind with Caracanti because you said that griot has a, a character of potassium deficiency and so that would uh, indicate a different kind of acidity level than you actually find and that there can be hints of saltiness sometimes and that might be climate but it might also be related to that potassium and so those are signature flavor notes that sometimes i get with caracante as well from etna and so i was curious if you wanted to because they're often not planted next to each other
2: What we're talking about, perhaps, because this is a a realm of big question mark nowadays, what minerality is or mineral flavors. But if you're talking about, we're really talking about mineral salts, and the only salt we conclusively can taste is sodium chloride, which is basically... If you're close to the sea, you're more likely to get it. And there are a lot of places in Sicily, particularly the southern half of Sicily, where you had evaporative areas where there were ancient salt seas which evaporated, and there's actually a lot of salt mining. The river Salsa runs up from the south of Sicily into the interior, and that means salty. In other words, it was salty river. And that saltiness can come through in the wines. And there are also maybe potassium chloride that perhaps we can has a slight bitter taste. Um, perhaps, um, if we go back in the history of our genome, hundreds of thousands of years ago, I don't know when man was created or uh, originated, but uh, maybe we did have the ability to taste these salts, but certainly at, at best now we have a vestigial ability. So I think that this idea of minerality in wine um, Certainly, the wines have uh, mineral salts, but we can only taste sodium chloride really well. So I would say that Grillo has more potential of showing this than Caracante at a high elevation, though certainly there could be sodium. You could still have sodium chloride in those wines or potassium chloride or whatever salt you want to come up with there. But, you know, I think... We get this whole idea of minerality or mineral flavors when we're grasping for something that we really can't understand. And I'm all in favor of that grasping because it's the ineffable about wine, which is just exciting, which as as exciting as what hits you in the face. So I think Caracante has a lot of, it's a very nuanced variety, it a, a, doesn't have a lot of varietal character, whereas Grillo uh, can actually be semi-aromatic, and tends to have uh, higher alcohol levels, higher glycerin levels, and so has more body, and it, it can take a little barrel fermenting. I don't think Caracante can do that well with barrel fermenting, and as a sign of its lack of varietal character, for instance, Planeta uh, blends it with a little bit of Riesling uh, in, in the varietal wine. Um, they, they do a varietal uh, Caracante. Uh, th- then in another wine, I believe he uses some neutral oak in order to give it some character. So it's a, it's a variety which has very, very little of its own character, which picks up nuances from other things. It's a very interesting variety but it's a more nuanced variety. Uh, And I think Grillo is much better for the big market because it's a more obvious, has a more obvious taste and has enough body to work with a lot of foods. I see that kind of contrast also with Nero d'Avola, which is a red grape variety
0: of, that's often associated with Sicily, and Norella Mascalese, where on one you might have more of a terroir expressive wine, and then the other maybe less terroir sensitive. However, it seems to do well in the markets, uh, looking for a, a more broader market.
2: Well, for instance, Giacomo Tacas took to Nero d'Avola, but not to Nerella Mascalese. He took to Nero d'Avola because it uh, tends to make a dark-colored wine, has a more distinct varietal character, uh, has more middle mouth structure, and he felt still, though, it needed to be blended with Cabernet and Merlot. This was the Takis mentality of, of making it suitable for the international market, making it, uh, enhancing it with some Bordelais characteristics. Uh, taken on its own, it does express place, um, but it also has a strong varietal character, and then that varietal character has made it more easy to sort of move in the international market. Um, Nerella Mascalese is more like Barolo Barbaresco. That's not the kind of wine I would sell to a novice. It's a wine which is, has a lot of finesse and elegance and fine astringency. It doesn't have a strong varietal character, in my view. It expresses more nuances than strong varietal character.
0: You mentioned saltwater and salty areas as a feature of the landscape, and Fran, you referred earlier to sulfur mining and sulfur being a feature of that landscape in terms of people coming from other areas often and seeking elemental sulfur, and how does that play into the island?
1: One of the facts that characterized Sicily's history was the fact that it has a rich source of natural resources, and yet Sicily as a place and its People failed to transform those natural resources into finished goods. So, for example, going back to the Middle Ages, Sicilians dating from the Muslim period were cultivating mulberries and silkworms, but would not transform the silk into finished cloth. The same was true with cotton. And so the Tuscan city states like Pisa and Lucca and Florence would transform those goods, and Sicilians would end up buying back finished goods from the raw materials which they grew with their backbreaking labor.
2: It's ironic that the Sicilians in terms of analogy only began using sulfur and sulfites in enologically in the 19th century when it was in the 15th century it was used in in Holland and in Bordeaux certainly centuries immediately afterwards. So it has a long history of usage. So ironically, they were sitting on all these mines. It did come in handy in the oidium epidemic, which basically ravaged uh, all of Italy beginning in about 1850. It became the source of elemental sulfur, which was essential for combating oidium. And then later, along with copper, pernospora downy mildew, which was another major disease. So it, Sicily did come to the rescue in terms of its supply of sulfur.
0: And that oidium outbreak that you described actually plays a big role in the history of the other book that you more recently came out with, which was about Tuscany and Chianti Classico, because what you described is that the Muscat-derived wine that was often grown around Siena basically was very subject to oidium, and it was effectively replaced by Sangiovese.
2: Yeah, it's not an easy variety to grow. It's very susceptible to mold, and with the arrival of steamships from the United States, these molds came over here in a big way. And uh, not only that, they eventually brought the phylloxera louse, which some of the indigenous varieties, for instance, caneolo and some other varieties, were not well adapted to grafting on on the rootstocks that had to be used. So the oidium epidemic was the, the first sign of these epidemics that really derailed Sicilian and Tuscan and Italian agriculture and actually all of that of, of Europe.
0: So both of your books are really explorations about how the people there, who perhaps changed over time, really had a different relationship with the land over time and how that affected the agriculture and specifically the wine. You could read both of your books as kind of a history of a people on a place or uh, migrations of people on a place and different political structures, how that ended up working. The Tuscan book really comes across in the early part of it as a debate between whether we're going to look at this wine as a market phenomenon or whether we're going to look at this wine as a, a wine of a region. And uh, that really carries on for much longer than I had had known before I read your book.
2: The original title of our book was In Search of True Chianti in the sense that it's always been my feeling that I wanted to know what Chianti was because even now in the marketplace, people are totally confused what Chianti is. They see Chianti, which costs $5 a bottle, $8 a bottle. And they see Chianti, which costs $30 a bottle, and they can't figure it out. And anybody who has an understanding of branding knows that you can't have a product with the same name, which has such varying price tags. And so it's a question of how did it come this way? And that's why our book is a search to figure out how did this evolve. The original idea, I think, was was to write a a book about all of Chianti. But then we thought about it some more, and it seemed like it was too big a topic, and we just had to focus on what we thought was truest to Chianti, which was Chianti Classico.
1: Chianti as a region is a place. It goes back to the Etruscan settlements of the 7th century BC. There are many toponym references within Tuscany that sound like Clantis, Chiantis, Uh, Chianti, and we believed it was imperative to reveal that place, as you said, Levy, and wine as an artifact of its culture. But the objective in doing that necessitated that we explain how it is that Chianti, which is a historical, storied place that produced an iconic wine at the height of the Italian Renaissance, came to be a generic wine synonymous with low-cost Italian wine in a straw-covered glass flask. So, in order to do that, we needed to trace the evolution of Chianti as a wine and as a place.
2: In the world of Sicilian wine, we focused on a very large island in this book we focused on an area that is between Siena and Florence you can drive it in 45 minutes and yet it was as complex because the whole renaissance this is the you know where the renaissance evolved and the renaissance basically rediscovered ancient Rome and Greece and this was where the republic you know uh, Bettina Ricasli was the second premier of Italy, and Florence was the capital city for some years. while well, he had that post. So it was and remains a place with many, many, many dimensions. And so it was peeling off thousands of layers of the onion. It wasn't going all around this island.
0: You mentioned the Renaissance, and one of the things that came up that was a connection in your book to the Renaissance was a Medici map of the Chianti Classico zone that you uncovered. And so it really does go that far back. And how did you come across that map and what did it indicate to you in terms of the region of Chianti Classico?
1: We had met Enrico de Flito, actually, before we went on our first trip. Niccolo. And, Niccolo de Flito, you're right. And um, he asked us to come see him at Frescobaldi. We entered uh, the estate at Pomino, and there were these large reproductions of what looked like individual parchments on the wall. And I, I asked I asked uh, Niccolo, what are those documents? Clearly, as someone who was in, in researching and investigating the history of Chianti Classico, they looked like they would be of interest because each of them was crowned by the Baroque stem of the Medici six balls. And he said, those two documents were promulgated by Cosimo III, the penultimate Grand Duke of Tuscany in 1716. One of them established a mechanism for regulating the exportation of Chianti Classico and the wines of three smaller regions within the Florentine state, and the other one officially delimited each of those four regions, specifically Chianti, Carmignano, Pomino, and Valdarno di Sopra. Well, Bill and I waited till we got back in our car, and it was clear that this was something that we should have read about in our historical research up to that point, but we had not even seen a reference to. And so interestingly, Levy, in our research, there is no map, just the textual descriptions and definition of each of these regions. And that began our quest to understand How were these laws promulgated? Based on our research, they represent the first construction of a legal appellation of origin for wine in the world. It was revolutionary from a legal and a commercial perspective. And yet in the story of Chianti and Chianti Classico, as it had been told in particularly the 20th century and early 21st century, it was missing from accounts before the mid-1990s.
2: When you, when you read it, after reading it, you really can understand a lot about Chianti Classico, how it's a place which has struggled with its own identity. And because of this struggle, these documents were hovering at the periphery of the culture. And for various reasons, they were never saw really the bright lights. If you understand the backstory, you can understand why it's such a complicated and labyrinthine world. And our book is about that.
0: One of the things that Americans frequently forget is how really Italy is composed of what were once warring city-states. That really plays into the idea of Chianti, because as you describe in the book, it begins as an association of a Florentine defensive league.
1: Exactly. Chianti, the territory levy, was the battleground between the warring city-states of Florence and Siena going back to the late 12th century. And the dispute over the borders between Florence and Siena were forged uh, in the high hills of Chianti. And while there was this arbitral settlement in 1203 that awarded Chianti to Florence, it took another 350 years before the Florentine state conquered southern Chianti and Siena. And so we hear about the War of the Chianti in the 20th century, and that war, when people say the Guerra del Chianti, they're referring to the war between the original Chianti, which in... Enological terms is referred to today as Chianti Classico, in really greater Tuscany, these seven subzones that have the right, and today the exclusive right to the name Chianti, to define their their wine and their places. If you look at the website of the Chianti Consortio, they will use the term, they do use the term places of Chianti, even though those places have no relationship to the historic Chianti. Chianti has always been defined by these battles over borders and boundaries. And the Bando, and you asked the question, could there be a better piece of historic and legal precedent for Chianti's identity than a legal document issued by a Medici Grand Duke? defining it as a wine region. And so for us, that was the quest. Who discovered it? Oh, you know, how was it used? Was it hailed as a great discovery? And also going back to its origins, how is it that it came to be? Which really raises another one of the key revelations in our book, and that is by the time of Cosimo III in 1716, and really the late 1600s, Chianti already was a precious wine going back to the high Renaissance in the mid-1500s. And while the conventional narrative of Chianti Classico is that it was Bettino Ricasoli who in the mid-1800s developed the Chianti Bland and selected Sangiovese out as its principal variety, it was in our research, principally our research on the evolution of agriculture and garden design in Tuscany under the Medici, that we discovered a little-known Florentine named Girolamo da Firenzuola who wrote an unedited manuscript, locked away in state archives, who described Sangiovese as the first person to our knowledge to mention it.
2: We talked in the Sicilian book about revelations. Certainly, one revelation was the mysterious background of the bandos, of the two bandi. The other was the mysterious background of Sangiovese, which, if you look at the at the mentions in literature, it was branded early on as a troublesome variety, which uh, made sort of acidic, harsh-tasting wines. It was a bountiful producer, but also had its tendency towards making vinegary. And a, a very a, a statement to Piliare la fuoco, which means il fuoco, which means to basically to bring on the fire, which probably meant ethyl acetate, which was airplane glue, the smell of airplane glue, which is volatile acidity. Uh, And it was branded as, as this sort of troublesome variety to avoid. And this was something that was repeated time and time again. And we came through seeing that Basically, the agronomic literature was written by nobles who were not farmers, were not doers, they were academics who were just repeating what other people had written about. And what they had gone back to was not the original uh, document which we went, which we think we reached with the Firanzuolo text of 1552, but a revision, a highly edited version, which didn't really understand very well what Firenzola was saying, sort of reorganized the text, left out a lot of stuff. And based upon that document, that manuscript, which has surfaced in the, this edition printed in 1871 in Siena, there was, we believe, that all these commentators built this false image of Sangiovese, which sidelined it until it had to be rediscovered in the 19th century by Giorgio Perrin, before Ricasli, who was the owner Petrolo There was a Fottore and, and Colli Valdelsa who mentioned it favorably in the early 1700s. Now, that phase seemed to be pulling away from its bad image, but it was only with, uh, really, Ricasli, which really helped reestablish its primacy. So, Ricasoli was basically, uh, was rediscovering the variety, and Chianti had already been discovered. And actually, the best agriculture for Chianti, for Sangiovese, had also been discovered by Firenzuolo, who wrote about the era of Panzano and Lamole and... Rada as in some other areas as being planted in vines where people took care of their vineyards they weren't, wasn't mixed agriculture it was only afterwards with the rise of the Mesadria system, uh, a more profitable system for nobles who didn't care about agriculture very much, who wanted to stay in Florence and play games and cards and all this sort of stuff, that um, these vineyards were basically turned into mixed plantings and Canaiolo basically took over because it was better adapted to growing on trees, and particularly making wines, which uh, were, were better suited for coming from grapes, which are grown on trees, because Sangiovese is an enormous producer of grapes. It's a, a buon dato is the old Italian term which we see in the manu- manuscripts, which means basically a generous producer. But the problem when you have a generous producer on trees is that the vine goes all over the place. Sangiovese is, is harvested a little bit later than Caneolo, and it produces a more acid grape variety with harsher, more astringency. So that the grapes would have been uh, a lot less suitable than Caneolo. So we have this peculiar, and this is where it's fascinating to look at the the impact of culture and history on. Analogy. People only tend to think that it's some hot winemaker who, who changes the story. But in this case, it was the Mezzadria system, this socioeconomic system of land management actually changed Chianti Classico and took away from a very a high point, which it was in the High Renaissance. And it had to be rediscovered, really, by Ricasli.
1: So, what's exceptional about are- Girolamo da Firenzuola and his text is not only does he single out Sangiovese as making a precious wine, he singles out Sangiovese from the high hills of Chianti. And it is the only variety he mentions in that chapter of book two of his unedited text. And he mentions many place names, as Bill said, including Rada, Lamole, and Pansano, which is significant for another Reason, Levy, because the 20th century war of the Chianti often turned on whether any townships or areas beyond the three traditional towns of the medieval military leagues, specifically Castellina, Rada, and Gaioli, should be part or were part of Chianti as an enological zone. And it's quite clear from Firenzevola's 1552 text that enological Chianti. Included the area between Greve, the Greve, the high Greve River Valley, through the area of, of southern Chianti, including those three areas associated with the medieval Chianti League.
0: So, something you stress repeatedly in your book is that that particular area that we think of as Chianti Classical was quite inaccessible. There was no navigable river to get the wines out and travel was by horse-drawn cart or by ox-drawn cart, and maybe communication was more difficult, and that distance ownership pattern was less hands-on and direct because you had people living in an area that was more of a city, while the actual area where the wine was being grown was hard to get to. At the same time, you talk about the soil type, and You've implied and said that it's perhaps no coincidence that these better wines or these more interesting wines or these more historically lauded wines tend to be at the top of these hills because the soil is actually different there than elsewhere on further down.
2: That's true. Particularly if we go back in time uh, when there weren't all these viticultural technologies, it was much better to be... On hillsides between 250 meters and 450 back then, Uh, and beyond soils which had a fair amount of rocks in them, particularly limestone was very helpful, or galestro, which is a unique sort of petrified clay, which is changes from rock into sort of clay, a clay based sort of soil um, rapidly. And these were two very, very important soils uh, in the ancient chianti which are still known to be the ideal soils for sangiovese so uh these were soils which were only there and you're quite right that the the power and the ease of production was on the periphery in other words where you could make money was not in the desolate and isolated area of Chianti itself, where it was very difficult to make a living, but in the flat areas where there was ease of travel, either by mostly by rail or later by auto and truck, and where uh, you had large areas of population, so basically the ancient Chianti, which is now basically Chianti Classico, was in a place where it was very difficult to make a living, easier to make great wine, but harder to make a living. And the merchants on the periphery took advantage of the situation, and that's why generic Chianti, or the big, the Chianti DOCG, we're talking now about the larger Chianti, extends for maybe maybe a quarter, a fifth of the surface area of all Tuscany. It really is... A Toscano wine, not a Chianti wine. Well, what happened is that that became really globally popular. That's right. And the emblem of that was the flask. It was great branding again. It was actually historic to the area. That flask was recorded, I think, in the the 14th century or some frescoes, uh, uh, basically a hand blown glass, which was. The reeds were sort of wrapped around it as a protection. A beautiful container, actually. Giacomo Taka's loved it. He just hated the wine that was in it, uh, what came to be the wine that was in it. But that was instantly recognizable all over the globe as Chianti and as, as Italian wine at a time when there was a mass emigration from Italy. And Italians, including my father recognized this wine when he saw this he saw italy it was going back home so it was a catchy emblem that the wine industry latched onto and for that reason they they transformed the recipe of bettino ricasoli from one which was basically sangiovese driven over 80% to one which had basically so called 70% Sangiovese, say, 20% Caneolo, 10% Trebbiano. But in some cases, the Trebbiano, we're talking now vines in the vineyards, and Trebbiano can double-produce other vines because it's so prolific. So you actually had very sort of pallid wine. Caneolo, particularly on post-Veloxer rootstocks, is a problematic, doesn't produce wines of great concentration, slightly bitter, lowish in acidity. And so you had wines which were not uh, the caliber uh, of the wines that were castly made, but were in this kind of container which was instantly recognizable all over the globe. What happens is that
0: over time, as you described quite well in the book and in a lot of detail, the historical area tries to reassert itself and is somewhat thwarted or shouted down by the more commercial interests at the periphery who have a lot of money that they have made and have a lot of money at stake by changing the rules or the makeup or the labeling. And in fact, they argue about it so much that it really is only when Italy joins the European economic community that this is somewhat resolved and delimited because the multiple tug-of-war voices don't really allow a resolution to come from inside of
2: Italy before that. In 1932, during the fascist period, the map was drawn up. Largely, Giovanni D'Amaso drew it up. And Fran goes, helped with, this, with her legal background quite a bit here. Uh, the law on which that map was sort of based on was basically overturned by another fascist law. And then you had World War II, which devalued or put into question the valid, the validation of these laws. Then you have Italy coming out of World War II and the European economic community. In the 1960s, uh, the Italian government had to draw up a wine law, which was sort of coordinated with French and German wine law, and which would allow it to get the benef- enormous benefits of agricultural monies that were flowing from the European Union. So they quickly baked in, in 1963, in their general wine law, law 930, the 1932 map that Giovanni Dalmesso made up, because it was something that particularly the industrialists could agree on. They left in it the possibility of blending in fifteen percent of varieties of grapes from other areas of Italy, which was uh, a nod to the people in southern Italy, which had an overproduction and wanted to sell bulk wine. And uh, they also nodded their head to the post ricasoli recipe uh, of Sangiovese, which included both Malvasia and Trebbiano in amounts and Caneolo to a certain degree, uh, in amounts which basically made it a a weak, common table wine, and basically baked in the fiasco, the flask, the kind of wine that was in the flask.
1: So to step back, you're absolutely right, Levy, that in the wake of the creation of the European economic community, there were significant financial and tax incentives and subsidies that would be awarded to DOCs. And individuals like Sir Lapo Matze of the Fontarutli estate in Castellina, uh, who were strong believers that Chianti as a place should secure its identity. And yet there were powerful commercial interests within the Chianti Classico consortium of merchants and bottlers who produced not just Chianti Classico, but also wine from external Chianti who wanted and did have a foot in either camp. And so there was a conflict but ultimately those commercial interests won out and Chianti Classico agreed to a unified Chianti DOC in 1967 with at the time the other six subzones and Chianti Classico in effect became a subzone of this greater Chianti. And over time legally ceded the exclusive right to the name Chianti to those external subzones.
2: In order to extricate itself from the external Chianti, it actually had to sign a document which said that it couldn't call itself Chianti anymore. It's like giving up your name. For them, that independence was so important that they were willing to do it. But in the world of branding, it's death to have the first name of your product to share that with another product, which is down market, which doesn't even represent your place. And that's what they were forced to do. And that problem remains today.
0: And speaking of branding, in the late 70s and then into the 80s, what you really see is that consulting winemakers become a sort of brand within Tuscany and exert more and more influence. And so again, maybe Stepping back from regionality of Chianti Classico and looking at some very famous people who were working with a number of different producers in inside of that, such as Bernabe, such as Fiore, such as uh, perhaps Takis, working for the
2: Antonori family. Tuscany was in touch with international influences. And for instance, Bettino Ricasoli was strongly affected by French technology And the technology was better than in Sicily, for example. Um, It needed help because the Chianti of the Chianti flask was making it impossible for Tuscan wine producers to move up market where they could gain significant profits, particularly those in Chianti Classico, where it was very difficult to grow grapes and then make a profit on the wine. So, what he did was he basically built a bridge over Chianti, generic Chianti, to a kind of wine which was a fashion wine, which was the super Tuscan category, which allowed producers, Antonori most notably, to get a huge profit margin and to be stylish, something that Chianti could not attain. And the profits, that were brought in through this genre of wine helped fuel the boom time of the 1990s and some of those monies filtered into Chianti Classico itself and thankfully helped bring back some interest to Sangiovese and making wine in a more traditional manner. Now we're coming into a a time where uh, people are really looking back and for a purer type of Real Chianti, and we're getting that now. So that was the impact of Tarkus. Um He helped clean the stables, clean up a lot of bad winemaking. But I think what we point to is that there was another strand there. Um, Giulia Gambelli, who was overlooked during this time, had a profound influence, but it was overlooked because he was the opposite of fashion. Uh, even his personality was Different, totally different from a modern business person. I don't know, have you ever seen the movie Being There? It's a Peter Sellers movie where the Peter Sellers plays this sort of person who, at, 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 and on one hand, he's so simple that some people think he's a prophet. On the other hand, they think he's a simpleton. Julian Gambelli was like that. He was a man who was so humble that he was like, a piece of stone in the ground. But at the same time, he had incredible knowledge and skill and was trained by Tencredi Biandisanti, Santi, one of the, the archetype of what I think of the great Brunellos of the 20th century, Brunello di Matocinos of Biondi Santi of the 1950s and 60s. Um, you had these two strands, but it was only Takis that was fashionable. Uh, and out of Takis, he made the position of a consulting analogist fashionable. People could make a living. They weren't looked down on. And so you had the next wave. And the next wave was basically Fiore Bernabe and Maurizio Castelli, who were critical. And then you had a third wave of consulting analogists. And now that basically the the environment is sort of saturated, and what we call on is for. Chianti Classico to really go back to making their own wine and not calling in experts to do it for them. Uh, we focus on, on a range of producers, but we partic- have a close eye on wine producers who are making a living from their wine, which is very hard to find in Chianti Classico. People who do the farming, people who make the wine, and people who do the, uh, the marketing, just like in Burgundy.
0: I've heard economically that there's more money in agroturismo rentals or in terms of luxury property ownership in that kind of market than there is in really making wine and a large swath of Tuscany.
2: There's more money in selling your property than holding on to it and flipping it over. And building it up via agriturismo was very popular because you got grants to do so in the 1990s. And then you could uh, realize income from it. It actually saved the countryside altogether, all which was a great thing. It certainly, it, it's been an important alternative cash flow for Chianti Classico producers. All you have to do is compare Chianti Classico to Brunello di Montalcino to see and understand the two, to understand why Brunello became so heralded as the source of great Sangiovese wine, and how the prices went sky high, and Chianti Classico has been sort of struggled to do so. If you look very closely at the two appellations, it's very clear why Montalcino has develop this mystique about it. What would you say is one of the key reasons? One of the key reasons is that it's a new appellation, uh, which doesn't have any baggage, and the core of the appellation remained the core. It wasn't like Chianti Classico where the periphery dominated. Uh, all the producers... Have the same, have the same sort of producer profile. They're basically small. It's, I think, two cooperatives, moderate to small sized cooperatives in, in, uh, Montalcino. Um, they all are quality oriented. They came onto the market in the 1990s when globalization opened up the wine shops and restaurants to placements and, uh, cash became available to buy these wines both in, Italy and in foreign markets, particularly the United States. Um, their branding structure is better. Uh, Chianti Classico, the cheapest Chianti Classico you can buy is Chianti Classico. Uh, then there's, it goes up to Chianti Classico Reserva, and then you get now Gran Selezione. Really, the best branding strategy is to have your most expensive wine be the logo, the place name, like Champagne would be uh, the great example of that. And then all these sort of qualifiers add confusion to the marketplace. Their best wine should be Chianti, and then they should have Rosso da Chianti. Unfortunately, Chianti Classico is the lowest genre of the branding structure. And then you have two brand tiers above, which generally are confusing to consumers. So I think that's also another problem. And Fran, when you've explored the Chianti
0: Classico area of today, what have you seen in terms of the landscape?
1: And I think that is probably one of the most important points to underscore, that while we've talked about the shortcomings from an agricultural perspective of the sharecropping system called the Mezzadria system, in effect, that system of sharecropping was perfected by the Tuscans, specifically Florentine and Sienese noble and merchant families who owned land in the countryside. And it created a system of land tenure that produced an agricultural tranquility for seven centuries. And in the wake of World War II, there were wise Florentines and Sienese who preserved that countryside. So the countryside today is one of essential beauty. It's a countryside that has been preserved. Those agriturismos you refer to, those are the former farmhouses of the sharecroppers who farmed that land and grew vines and made wine for centuries. And the cypress trees and olive groves, it is a place of essential pure beauty. There are seven times the amount of forest land in Chianti as vineyards. So, unlike areas like Barolo in Bordeaux or Alsace, which are dominated by a monoculture, Chianti as a place is more sustainable, more diversified, and maybe, and probably in our opinion, is one of the most beautiful viticultural areas in the world. Chianti is a place, it's, it's a beauty, and it, it deserves to be known by its own name Chianti.
0: Fran Di Savino and Bill Nesto have been drawn to regions that offer a lot of diversity, and although they have featured tumultuous histories, the beauty of those places has more than made up for it. Thank you very much for being here today.
1: Thank you, Levy. Thank you, Levy. Thanks so much.
0: Fran Di Savino and William Nesto of A World of Sicilian Wine and Chianti Classico, The Search for Tuscany's Noblest Wine. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton.